0: welcome aboard the battleship pretension i'm tyler smith i'm david backs and thank you for listening david yeah how you doing i hear you loud and clear and hopefully everybody hears me the same way
1: yeah we uh we did get some some uh very helpful feedback about an issue that we already knew about by the time the episode posted but we couldn't do anything yeah. about um but i do appreciate people uh uh, chiming in, um, yeah. and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we have the steps we have taken. Uh, the uh, journal address. sounds
0: good. I listened back to the journal, oh, so I think okay. we're I think we're in good shape.
1: Um, other than that, I've just been uh, rocking out to some music on my TweetDaddy.com earbuds. Uh, what music, it- David? Well, com first is what I, 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 I want to start with. I don't want to bury the lead here. The lead here oh, is dot right, 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 com yeah. is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. Uh, today I was listening to a um, I was trying to look up where they're from, and I can't uh, figure it out, but a band called... They're called... I don't know if you say it Andromeda, but it's not spelled like... The Andromeda Galaxy, which is E-D-A, it's Andromeda, so I don't know if it's like, it's I-D-A. Andromeda? I'm not sure. Maybe it's just a misspelling. But they're a, uh... Andromeda? It could be that. Maybe Andromeda. Yeah, they're a, um, prog metal band, uh, real nerdy stuff, um, sounded, oh, it's actually a one-man, um, uh, band, uh, sounding great on my tweaked audio com earbuds that are available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension okay it's
2: time to commit Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Tyler? Yes? We're going to get into it in a minute. Okay. We're going to get into talking about our topic, which is, it's thankfully, 2020 is halfway over. We are almost halfway done uh, with this year and everything is going to be great and bright and sunny and happy in 2021. Yeah. Guaranteed.
0: That's, I do appreciate that, like, crises just really adhere to the calendar. It's uh, the way the way seasons do for me, you right. know, like... January 1st, regardless of what happens with the election or the pandemic or anything like that, things, it's just going to yeah. be better.
1: It's the same way that the coronavirus respects the mask laws in different uh, of regions of states of, part of the country. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: anyway. And, like, and, and mass gatherings like church. No, thank you. Coronavirus has no patience for that. <laughs> yeah, you've got exactly. if you've got political points to make, though, or important cultural points, It's got you covered. Don't you worry. Not literally,
1: obviously. Uh, The mask has you covered. That's Mm. what uh, hopefully everyone is covering themselves. Smoking. uh, With a mask. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's got to stop me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right um so we're gonna count we're gonna count down our top five movies of the year so far but first i want to introduce uh he doesn't really need an introduction he's on the show every other goddamn week uh it's uh, a battleship pretension editor at large scott and i hello how you doing
2: oh you know hanging in there just the rest of us i was uh I was piddling around on twitter last night as one does in these times with little else to do Ugh. and came across a, a mask of a different sort uh-huh uh, that i'm very keen to ask st louis native david Bax about yeah which is the mysterious and not at all creepy veiled prophet ball of st yeah. louis uh yes yeah, so i'm glad to be some kind of ritual in which a masked elite gentleman of the community Picks a bride
1: from amongst many potential options. It's not actually a bride. Uh, well, but um, it's something equally creepy. It it's is a creepy. mistress, actually. The guy's already married. <laughs> so um, yeah. So when you brought this, up, or when you yeah, you uh, tagged me in a tweet about it, and I was like, oh yeah, because the and, and I I know I, I knew very little about growing up. I knew very little about the Veiled Prophet Society of St. Louis or the Veiled Profit Ball. What I knew was the Veiled Profit Fair, or the VP Fair, which is now known as just Fair St. Louis, which is their 4th of July celebration every year. Right. Uh, and is accompanied by a parade. The parade used to be attached to the ball, which is in December, but now the parade is attached to the 4th of July uh, um, uh, celebration. So, But to go back to the beginning for... Uh, way back to the 1870s. um, The Veiled Profit Society is a sort of secret society of wealthy St. Louis business and industry leaders. And they put on events like the fair they still I, they're still involved in the fair and the parade but those the vp fair is now called the fair of st louis uh and the vp parade is now called the america's birthday parade which is the lame name um, awful. <laughs> yeah um uh, but the veiled prophet ball still happens every december i was surprised to learn i uh, looked that up um and you should definitely check out uh back in 2014 every time like st louis is in the news for bad reasons like with ferguson Sure. The veiled profit thing comes up again. So back in 2014, Scott Beecham or Scott Beauchamp, Beauchamp uh, wrote an article for the Atlantic about the history of the veiled profits. I read that, that article. Yes. It's a really good article. I'm looking really, at it now. Uh, really gets into the the labor and class uh, and race history uh, behind the the ball, the, uh, behind the veiled profit society. You know, it was sort of uh, founded to defy unions, essentially. Right. Um, but uh, the ball itself is uh, every December. Someone from amongst the ranks of the Veiled Prophet Society, meaning uh, business industry leader, we don't know who, uh, except for in one very exciting case in 1972, where an activist yanked the prophet, yanked <laughs> the veil off the prophet uh, on stage. Um, we don't, and we, it was a, a Monsanto uh, CEO of some sort or or vice president. Um, we don't know who the prophet is, but the Veiled Profit lords over this ball where the teenage girls of society i guess there's still a high society in st louis uh have their as you know as you know i recently
0: saw the skulls so i know (laughs) i know all about this
1: um they have like a coming out and like a like a debutante ball but it's a bunch of them at once and then the veiled prophet picks one of them one of these teenage girls to be the Queen of Love and Beauty, and dances with her, and gives her a gift. Um, uh, uh, and Scott, as you also saw, as I saw, as on Twitter, that you also found out that uh, Ellie Kemper was the yes. 1999 Queen, Queen of Love and Beauty. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, if you read the the names of the Queen of, Lo- of Love and Beauty, if you know St. Louis, there's names like Schnook and Bush that come up again and again. That are you know th- these are the these are the city fathers. These are the uh, the uh, the big swinging dicks of St. Louis. Um, but uh, the the thing. So I I didn't have much memory of this, but I know that it was tele. The Veiled Prophet Ball was televised up until sometime in the late seventies. I I couldn't figure out exactly when it was taken off the air. So I called my mom to see if she had any memory sure. of seeing those, and she was like, "What? It was televised?" Like she was like we all knew that was just for rich people. Like we, like, we didn't care, which is exactly how I, to whatever extent I was even aware of the veiled profit ball as a kid, it was the same thing. Like it's, that's not for us. That's for, for other people. But I did find a very, uh, my mom did give me a very, uh, uh, interesting piece of information, which is that, uh, my dad had a friend who was a professional artist and designer who used to design floats every year for the uh. Veiled Profit Parade. And one year, when I was very little, my sister and I rode on a float in the Veiled Prophet Parade. <laughs> You're more tied to it than you thought. Yeah, yeah oh, I do have some tie to the Veiled Profit Society, but um, uh, that's, uh, I don't know. Do you have any more questions? Cause that's about all. I No, could.
2: I mean, I was disappointed to learn you were so unfamiliar with it. Cause as I told you on Twitter, I, I had hoped that this was something that the, the entire citizenry of St. Louis turned out in the streets for yeah. and was <laughs> on pins and needles to see who the veiled prophet would pick.
1: Well, as you probably learned from that Atlantic article, it's been rooted in class from the beginning. And so I think, I think my impression is that there's a, among people like, I don't know. I grew up in a nice suburban home in a nice part of the suburbs, but I'm essentially a working class kid, right? You know, son of a mechanic and a nurse, you know? And so I think there is sort of this deeply rooted, like among the working class, like, Oh, that's not for us. You know, that's uh, fuck those guys. They're uh, a bunch of rich idiots.
2: Yeah. Uh, Americans are usually not as good at about Just saying fuck the rich. they usually want to be the rich. So I thought they would be turning uh, up, you know, to
1: try to yeah. be a part of their world. Yeah. I'm sure there's a, uh, David, I'm sure there's some of that.
0: Yeah. David, it sounds to me that rather than the veiled profit ball, Oil Dorado is more your speed, which is the uh, the celebration in my hometown of Taft, California, <laughs> you told <me> that, yeah. <laughs> uh, where uh, I have very little memory of this, but it's, it is a ridiculous thing. And it's not every year. I believe it's every... Every three or four years. I don't know. Every five years, pardon me. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, oh, there's a situation where all men who are able to grow facial hair are required to grow facial hair during oil Dorado. And I'm, I'm pulling from the Wikipedia page. I don't know how enforced this is anymore. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, if a man does not grow facial hair, he must pay for a permit and wear a bolo tie or a lapel <laughs> pin called a smooth puss badge. Uh, if he is, uh, what is it? Uh, if he is caught clean shaven without his badge, he may, be arrested by the posse oh and i can click on that but i don't know I, it might just take me to the definition of posse right. uh, a group of men dressed in western garb sporting pistols and rifles filled with blanks thankfully and of course facial hair structurally that sentence it makes it sounds like the rifles are filled with facial <laughs> <Yeah>. hair <laughs> um uh the man will be placed in a jail truck called the Hooskow and driven around town for an hour for all to see. Uh, warrants may also be purchased to have somebody else arrested and placed in the Hooskow. I don't remember much of this, uh, but I do remember uh, Oil Dorado being a big thing. I feel like that's more your speed, David. Yeah, that's, uh, that sounds fun. The only people paraded through town are guys with smooth pusses, <laughs> <laughs> but who don't have the puss badge. Or their yeah. customary bolo tie. Right. <laughs> uh, Scott, do you have right. any, I mean, you're, you're from, I forget, are you from Boston originally no, or from Portland. You're, from, you're from Portland? Okay. But you went to school. I uh, went to college in Boston. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's um, right. Well, of course, I'm sure Portland has all kinds of uh, delightful and uh, strange ceremonies and and events. Not
2: any ceremonies that I can recall, just like weird bits of histories. I mean, the thing I always point to because it's the most absurd is that we have the smallest park in the country. It's just like a small square of grass that somebody just declared was a park and then eventually became a city park and was so declared that they shut down the street and used a full-size crane to place a tiny miniature... Ferris wheel on the property the day they declared it was to be an official park. Uh, and it main t- remains the uh, smallest official park in the U.S. I'm looking it up
1: right uh, now. I'm glad people are keeping Portland weird. Um, oh yeah, there it is. Uh, That's adorable. We'll get in, uh, Let's get into the topic of the episode. But first, I, I want to go back to the Veiled Profit Ball. I was, I came up with this theory. I was talking to my wife about the Veiled Profit Ball today because I was reading so much about it. And I came up with this theory that Uh, and maybe this sounds crazy to people now because Chicago is such a big, uh, city, but in the late 19, late 1800s, early 1900s, there really was a competition between St. Louis and Chicago as to which city was the bigger city, which city was America's sort of jewel of the Midwest type of city. And Chicago clearly won that. And I think that, psychologically st louis has never been okay since i i I think there's i think it kind of drove a lot of us crazy st louis is now uh, it's it over a hundred years after the fact it's still like subconscious identity is a failed big city that yeah i think that some of that isn't true of portland as well
2: because uh for a while it was just all seattle on the west coast and portland was seen as like uh uh, you know, ugly stepchild or whatever. Like we're just the cast off. We nobody cares about us. So I think that was what bred so much weirdness in Portland. Mm. Is like, well, we can get away with anything. Nobody cares about us now.
1: Yeah, you know, but, I- yeah. S- St. Louisans still want you to think of them. That's there's a there's a thing that uh, you'll find that St. Louisans when they go leave St. Louis will rarely describe themselves as being from Missouri. They're not from Missouri. They're from St. Louis Uh, because because I think St. Louis and still have this thing. Like we we were so close to being Chicago and we're not.
0: Now I've told this on here before, but it's always fun for me to talk about. Uh, Many years ago, I was watching a VHS tape of a show called biker mice from Mars and uh which was just one of many uh rip-offs of teenage mutant ninja yeah. turtles to where it's just like okay we need a nice long title um but anyway uh it, it became so clear that this show originated in some capacity in chicago because aliens come to conquer earth where do they start well obviously chicago <laughs> because and and the uh and the um the 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 evil the, the the main evil uh emperor or whatever uh he when regarding chicago he goes ah chicago jewel of the midwest <laughs> everything like okay so this is paid for by like the board of tourism or something like yeah, that in chicago right there <laughs> yeah exactly so anyway oh man i okay. love
1: we'll move on i, I um recently finished watching BoJack Horseman. I don't know if you guys have seen it all the way through, but uh, a character moves to Chicago in the final season, and there are so many great, like, taking the piss out of Chicago. Like, Mm -hmm. everything that they eat is... I'm going to get some more Chicago-style French fries. Like, everything is (laughs) Chicago-style. And then also there's a joke where she calls... She calls Mr. Peanut Butter. Mr. Peanut Butter is like, "Oh, are you a, are you a Chicagoan now? You know, I went to school in Chicago." And she goes, "You went to school in Northwestern. That's not in Chicago." And he goes, "You are a Chicagoan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm maybe Miss Chicago, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Let's get into it, shall we? We're going to talk about our top five movies of the year so far. And because uh, my last name starts with a B, and no one's last name starts with an A, I get to go first. Um, and so that means I get to start by laying out my uh, r- that luckily there have been enough officially released movies not necessarily in theater, some of them released digitally that 's fine with me um, uh, that are actually twenty twenty premiering movies that i didn 't have to make an exception to my usual strict rule, but it does mean that there are some things that seem like they should be obvious. That aren't on my list Like The Vast of Night is not making my list Because that's a 2019 uh, movie But that absolutely would be on there uh, uh, Anyway um, So uh, Just to, just wanted to lay that out So I will start With my number 5 movie Excuse me, of the first half of 2020 And uh, I believe it's my only Documentary on the list it's one I saw back at Sundance and it's Lana Wilson's Miss Americana which is the documentary about Taylor Swift specifically its storyline is about Taylor Swift's decision to become a politically outspoken uh, artist and celebrity but often what I like about uh, documentaries about individuals um, are the things that they reveal other than uh, uh, what they seem to be about? Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. uh, I reminded of another Netflix documentary from a few years ago. that I think it was just called Amanda Knox. It was about Amanda Knox, um, which is a it's sort of a true crime thing about the. Uh, she was I don't know if you guys remember Amanda Knox. She was the woman who was uh, uh, American woman who lived in Italy and was accused of murdering her roommate. Uh, yes, and, that's and right. Went to jail for a little bit in Italy and then was was cleared. And the movie on its own is a good. That a good true crime story, but it's really about this strange woman who, even though the all the evidence says she didn't do it, seems like the type of person that might murder her roommate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I, I didn't mean to turn this into an endorsement of uh, Netflix's Amanda Knox documentary, but it's worth it's worth watching. Um, but Miss Americana, uh, I, I think, I, I while I like this. Um, the, the plot line that it has and I like the way that we uh, see sort of um, generationally um, what what it means for an artist to be outspoken or more specifically what it means for an artist of Taylor Swift's generation to stay quiet I think is more what the movie uh, is about that's that's very interesting uh, stuff but what it ended up also accidentally being is for anyone who's still too cool to admit that taylor swift is great or is a skeptic of taylor Taylor swift it's undeniable evidence of her talents as a songwriter there are multiple scenes of her in the studio just creating that are among the best depictions of the creation of art that i've ever seen it's astounding how quickly she can come up with the right lyric and the look on her face when she realizes that she's found the right lyric it's a it's a beautiful thing and it's miss americana is in that way kind of uh an argument for how uh special uh art is and how how uh talent should be uh cherished and celebrated
2: a quick question about this movie Okay. Uh, what period of time does it cover? Because my impression as someone who is not a Swifty uh, is that she only became like this politically outspoken artist after this film premiered.
1: Did she become it beforehand and I just missed it? Uh, it no, yeah. She, it, she became... It was the um, the 2018 uh, midterms was when she started speaking right. out. She okay. started I endorsing particular candidates. Okay. So um, it's really... Uh, the In terms of the the time period, it's really... The period of time that she is um, writing and recording "Lover," the album that came out in 2019. Um, sure. That that's really the, the the time period it covers. But there's a lot of uh, older footage, uh, some very emotional older stuff. Like uh, there's there's a home home video, uh, Christmas footage of very young Taylor Swift getting her first guitar as a Christmas present. Yeah. Uh, that, that is, yeah, it's very like, I, I got kind of emotional. I, I saw it at Sundance and in festivals, you tend to be on like little sleep and you're seeing movies. I think I saw this Probably. movie like eight 30 in the morning and I tend to be a little bit more emotional. So I remember, I remember welling up at multiple points in this movie, but that might've just beca- been because I was in, a, in an emotionally vulnerable, uh, state but uh yeah terrific movie worth watching
0: oh i would have been exactly the opposite which anything <laughs> i saw at eight thirty in the morning it's like oh god help you i could see my favorite movie of the year and be like it's not that great
1: <laughs> okay so uh alphabetically i think scott is next yeah uh
2: my number five is uh lisa barrows de saw and glenn laburn's ordinary love um stars liam neeson and leslie manville as a married couple uh who is a very short movie it's like 90 minutes long uh very soon in the movie leslie manville discovers that she has breast cancer and the movie just takes place over the course of this year of them uh both together and apart dealing with that dealing with the individual steps involved in that and reconciling that this might be a temporary thing it might be a horrific year they go through or it might be the end of everything for them um and it 's just as kind of harrowing as that premise promises without I think kind of overdoing it uh, they ha- They have this very this established at the beginning this very kind of light friendly uh, slightly combative relationship that 's just kind of very much i think what a lot of couples get to be like when they 're older um, where they're not you know they 've gone past the stage of vulnerabilities and are just kind of at a point of accepting one another and can lightly tease each other without like devastating the other person uh so most of the conversations are kind of combative so when they have to confront this very life-altering event they don't really have the tools the emotional tools at the ready in order to come together on that and so a lot of the grieving they do is apart and the way in which they eventually come together is at once unexpected I don't want to spoil anything but I think it was unexpected especially for a film about an older couple and very very touching um yeah I was just deeply moved by the film throughout. I hadn't heard of uh, the director, uh, Lisa Burst's, uh I think Glenn Laburn is either her husband or her, I don't think they've made films together in the past, but I hadn't heard of her before. Uh, and I'm so glad that I just kind of randomly took this press screening, because I absolutely loved the film.
0: That's all I got to say. All right. All right. Next for me is a film that I actually mentioned in the most recent movie journal, so I don't want to belabor it too much, uh, which is Spike Lee's The uh, Defy Bloods um which as i said is actually not uh in my view like a a perfect film i think it's a little bit scattershot and a little bit messy but in a way that i really like um that is that that's that's the kind of spike lee that i that i enjoy Mm -hmm. uh inside man is all well and good uh but it's a little bit too organized for my taste uh i like shot i like a, a shotgun blast of a movie sometimes and that is very much what defy bloods is um it is relevant very much to the conversations that are being had today while still you know when he's when he is on the mark like he manages to make something that is relevant in the in the uh, macro sense while also being very specific to these characters approaching them as yes representative of something but still very much themselves and I really appreciate that about uh defy bloods and I think it's very there are scenes that that have uh, I saw it a few weeks ago there are scenes that have really stayed with me scenes of of unity and scenes of you know characters in fighting and getting very frustrated with each other and then suddenly something comes up that uh or they they discover something that brings them all back together and they realize that what they have in common is so much deeper than the things that uh divide them and so uh it really is a a special movie i'll be a one that maybe is this is going to sound strange this isn't something i say very lightly but like it might go on a little bit too long at times. And it's, I think it's probably a little bit self-indulgent, but I don't mind that when the, when the passion is there and some really solid craftsmanship and some wonderful acting. I already, I already spent several minutes in the movie journal praising the work of Delroy mm-hmm. Lindo. The whole cast is great, but, uh, but Del, Delroy Lindo especially is, is solid. But while I think that his performance is worth the, the two and a half hours alone the rest of the film thankfully uh comes around that and and i think uh, on top of everything else it is a film about bitterness and resentment and holding grudges uh, and maybe even grudges against oneself and the the liberation that comes from forgiveness uh it really is just a fascinating movie and one that that I think is extremely relevant to what people are talking about today. And uh, given what I was talking about in regards to forgiveness, there, there might be some people that watch the film and say, no, this is not hard hitting enough. Um, But, uh, but nonetheless, it's uh, I, I I really respect Spike Lee as, as a filmmaker and just making movies that feel right to him. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed five butts. yeah that fell just outside my top five
2: um and speaking to the scattershot thing like spike lee's thought process can sometimes be difficult to trace (laughs) um but it's so electric and alive and i love that he makes the connections he make even if like they're never connections i would make in terms of like historical incidents or precedents or like ways things lead to one another it's like that in a sense it all kind of adds up but it's what makes him so brilliant is the fact that he can relate all these things together and
0: I, I I could see somebody looking at a movie like defy bloods or, or even black Klansman or whatever. Um, and just saying like, well, you know, we suddenly jump into like documentary footage or we jump into this, or now characters are looking at the camera, whatever it is, uh, stuff that doesn't fit with what, it would be considered like consistent mainstream filmmaking, but it's something that it feels right for him. And then he sells it so that it feels right for the film. And so that's what I mean when I say like, it could be seen as very messy, but it all, but given the subject matter and just the way people are sometimes messy is much more correct than something clean and consistent.
1: Yeah. I feel like terms like, Messy and overstuffed and self-indulgent are generally used as pejoratives, maybe more than they should be. But if there's any director for whom that sounds like a recommendation, it's (laughs) going to be Spike Lee for me. Yeah. Uh, All right, on to my number four, which is... um, Osgood Perkins, Gretel and Hansel, a, uh, a, a horror movie that came out uh, in theaters in February, I think. Um, that is, uh, I, uh, I know uh, among certain people, Osgood Perkins is already uh, uh, a bit of a star in certain certain like. Art horror circles for things like, uh, what's, I, know, I can't remember. It's like the Pretty Thing that Lives in the House. The Black Coast Daughter and yeah. I Am the Pretty Thing that Lives yeah. in the House. Yeah. yeah. Both movies that I didn't see, uh, but now I want to because, uh, Gretel and Hansel is, uh, um, unceasingly strange but immersive, uh, uh, aesthetic and visual experience. Terrific score, by the way, by a guy who just goes by Rob. That's how he's credited. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also did the score for the movie revenge that, uh, Coralie Farge, uh, um, uh, movie from a couple years ago. Um, so, uh, d- terrific score. Um, the movie is sort of, uh, did either of you see Gretel and Hansel? I did. Um, okay. So the movie is, uh, uh again, things that sound like a pejorative, it's kind of static in a lot of ways. Like it kind of settles on a tone and stays there. I feel like there's, but I also feel like that makes even the slightest upping of stakes or tension or emotionality, uh, seem bigger, you know, more, uh, impact impactful, I guess is what I'm looking for. Um, it's a, uh, I, I think it's timed just right at under ninety minutes, um, uh, and there's not a single moment in the movie that feels uh, less than uh, considered, maybe even worried over, uh, but in a way that I uh, that I that I responded to. I found it to be um, uh, a very transportive, otherworldly movie. Uh, Scott, you saw it. What did you think?
2: Oh, yeah. The only other thing I wanted to say about it is that it has a way of making its CG effects seem kind of handmade. And I can't really Mm -hmm. put my finger on, like, what certain technique went involved in that. It's just that when I watch it, I got the same feeling of it that I get from, like, watching stop motion or Mm -hmm. uh, time flap sequences or whatever. uh, Older methods used to be used for what we use CGI for now. Uh, It kind of still had that feeling, which worked in tandem with the production design, which is so elegantly crafted and so strange and often grotesque um it never really felt like there was just a cgi layer laid on top of it which i feel like happens a lot with horror especially
1: and i should say i think one of the performances of the year so far is alice creek as the the witch sure um i only knew alice creek from uh she's in the second season of deadwood she's the um when when Joni stubbs opens her own Brothel oh. in Deadwood, the other madam that she brings uh oh, with yeah. her is Alice Creek. That's the only thing I really knew her from. But she's it's a great performance in in Gretel and Hansel. And uh, Sophia the girl from It is uh Gretel. She's she's really good mm. too. Um and uh Hansel's just a little kid. He's a cute normally they're portrayed as being like pretty yeah, close like in age, age, yeah. But uh she's considerably older uh and he's just a little moppet uh, and he's got some cute lines i was hoping you'd say moppet i'm very excited <laughs> by that it was also uh, it was shot in some
2: weird aspect ratio too it was like one five five or something uh yeah i think that's right actually yeah one so It's a very strange looking
1: movie yeah yeah i really liked it uh all right scott number four
2: for you yeah my number four is a georgian film called and then we danced um it's about i'm um, probably a little loose on the plot because this is one i saw a while ago but um it's about a young man who's a ballet dancer uh very determined to sorry a belly dancer a ballet dancer oh a is. ballet dancer <laughs> no um not. a very determined to make it in i guess the georgian ballet in this very uh very captivating to watch kind of georgian dance style um and very single minded pursuit uh one day another young man joins the dance troupe and it is Kind of in every way better than him even though he's less experienced has kind of less claim over the form than our protagonist does uh and so a lot of jealousy sets in right away where's this guy come from what's he doing taking my spot in the troop um and then with that a little bit of attraction comes into play uh and if you know anything about georgian politics you'll probably be aware that uh homosexuality is not uh terribly condoned there to the extent that the film was uh, I don't know about if it was outright banned. It, at least there were attempts to, and there were huge protests around showing it. Um, but the film very much wrestles not only with the uh, societal impact of this guy's attractions, the fact that his career as a ballet dancer could be at risk if he pursues this, but also kind of the personal self-loathing that comes into play when you've grown up in a society that uh, so condemns a certain type of sexuality. Uh, and I love these kind of films that kind of draw in jealousy, ambition, and attraction all in together. And this does it really, really well um, in terms of, like I said, not only kind of his internal struggles, but how that gets externalized in his dance, um, how he pushes himself too far, how he tries to get away with it in front of his girlfriend, how his girlfriend kind of sees through that and uh, is, you know, so often in the American version of the story, there's a moment where she tearfully goes like, go find him uh but here you know she's in the same kind of repressed society he is so she like outright hates him for this uh so the obstacles and the struggles that everyone is is facing are so much more heightened than the premise would necessarily suggest uh and the director really just tackles it all exceptionally well uh yeah and then we danced i really really liked i don't know what its availability these days is to have a brief theatrical run um but everything is kind of in limbo right now so if it does pop up on vod i highly recommend people check it out
0: okay all right my number four now david is as, as everyone uh, knows like a lot you and i don't do not adhere to the same rules uh yeah. you know i'm, a, I'm no one American. adheres to the, my
1: rules are That's true. crazy no one yeah. should have to adhere to my rules. They're way too strict.
0: Yes. Uh, and uh, thankfully I didn't because otherwise my uh, my list of <laughs> 2020 films would be very, very short. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is a, a film that was released in, I think, Australia last year, but it uh, was released in the U.S. here. And it is Mirafolk's Judy and Punch, uh, which is, again, a film that is just so odd and it just does not adhere to just just basic rules of tone and and story and character uh in many ways it's very straightforward but in other ways the choices that are made are delightfully ridiculous and it is about you know um the characters punch and judy who have this very successful uh, puppet show um punch is played by damon harriman of uh once upon a time in hollywood and uh wonderfully in mindhunter um and then uh, judy is paid played by uh, mia vasikowska and uh, they have a, a son together, but punch has a drinking problem and it eventually leads to a violent, uh, confrontation between the two of them. And, uh, Judy is, uh, uh left for dead, essentially speaking of left for dead. Sorry about that. I don't know if you can hear the uh, explosions outside my, my window, yeah. but, um, so, so there's a re- there's a revenge quality but like within all of this it's it's sort of a medieval film and so judy falls in with like uh, a, a a bunch of people that have been uh Deemed witches by society. And, uh, meanwhile, punch, uh, continues to gain, uh, acceptance and popularity and all that. So, uh, it has these parallel stories and punch is our villain or rather our antagonist. Uh, and we don't really sympathize with him, but the film does spend a lot of time with him, which I appreciate and everything, the, the hysteria around witches is something that he is able to play into because there's a showmanship quality to him and to the world in which he lives. And the the film features, I won't say it's ravenous-esque music, but it's this mm. very intense, uh, so, a sort of almost like over-the-top level of portent uh, in, in the music. And yet all of this is also very funny and and ridiculous uh there comes a moment where a character is is delivering a monologue to the to the city and then just starts quoting gladiator um oh wow yeah and so uh it's and and the film knows like it's a well-known gladiator quote the film knows that we're going to recognize it and it doesn't just does it and then just moves on and again it's like i like that I, I appreciate the film's level of just doing like oh, we're gonna i'm just gonna make this movie and we're gonna move on and everything will be a lot of fun uh mira uh, mira folks it is she's uh, is an actress i believe this is her directorial debut and it's it's got that kind of of boldness and self-assuredness that that can sometimes come from a first or a
1: second time filmmaker i i really love it so the the circumstances are too perfect for me to not resurrect this joke I made months ago. But Gretel and Hansel, Judy and Punch. Yeah. What's next? Isolda and Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is that what's next? uh yeah i no, think so not, uh, oh. not for me next for oh, me right. uh my number three film of 2020 so far the last film i went to see in a theater on monday march 9th not counting the press screening of my spy uh the last time <laughs> i actually went to voluntarily see in a theater is autumn dewild's emma i had to put a pause there because it's a period at the end of the sentence or at the end of the the title um uh, yeah, this is a movie I was uh, very excited about beforehand, and uh, um, really, uh, uh, I guess lived up to my my expectations. I think uh, it's because I had seen. I try to. I largely try to avoid movie trailers, but I would see I remember seeing the trailer for Emma. I think before Little Women back in December. The times out, right? Uh, probably, um, and uh, the the trailer for Emma is very funny. And so I was excited to see this kind of like uh cheeky heightened take on, um, it's Jane Austen, right? Is that yeah. right? Okay. On, on, on Jane Austen. Um, and I think wisely the movie starts very much like the trailer. It, it does seem, uh, very, very heightened. Uh, you've got, um, uh, Bill he kind of hilariously hamming it up, um and the other actor who plays the i can 't think of his name who plays the uh the the priest or or the chaplain or whatever Joshua connor is his name is also very larger than the life moves very funny, but then it like not even I was going to say gradually, but pretty quickly after that, it actually settles into just being a more straight faced respectful adaptation. Um, and so I think that I, I'm not sure what that first section is maybe there to just like, uh, throw you off of what you expect from a Jane Austen adaptation so that your mind's open and then you can reapproach it, uh, um, taking things, uh, uh seeing things for, for what they are. And I think, uh, Autumn DeWild does a great uh, job as, as director. There's a lot of, um, uh, great use of, uh, of of space with these with these big rooms and uh with large groups of people you know uh cutting around large groups of people picnicking outside and stuff like that the direction's good but really the thing that comes back to me uh is is performance and uh Anya Taylor-Joy is uh has quickly become an actress that I uh really like and her performance as as Emma um is uh startlingly uh um sharp and and aware and she plays the sort of cusp of adulthood very well but sometimes she can be still a girl and can uh speak without thinking or act without thinking um but sometimes she can also be um a a more mature adult who has earned empathy over the course of her life and um, can understand how her her actions uh, affect affect people. Um, uh, I I, I thought for for, uh, a story that has been, I guess, the story of Emma is the basis of Clueless, and so it becomes a thing like like with certain like Shakespeare things or whatever, where we just understand here are the main characters and plot points. It's just like a sort of boilerplate that other things are built on. Autumn DeWild kind of went back to the text in a way and said, uh, no, this isn't just a bunch of, uh, archetypes. This hasn't like congealed into, uh, uh, something that we all can just look at once and understand there's a full story here and there are characters here and the, this, the, there are still new things to mine, uh, from, from this, uh, from this story. Uh, yeah. Uh, terrifically well do, well acted by, uh, I mentioned Bill Nighy and Anya Taylor joy. Uh, also, uh, Johnny Flynn and Mia goth, uh, are, are both very good in the movie. I like Mia goth a lot. I
2: like that Johnny Flynn a lot.
1: Yeah. You saw it too, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. and the only other thing I wanted to mention with it is, uh, it does the great thing I always like in modern period pieces where it shows somebody getting dressed into that like super restrictive gear and you're like, Holy shit, yeah. that is impossible <laughs> to get ready every day. It's a good thing. They had nothing to do.
1: Yeah. Uh, i I'm sorry. I forgot to mention one of the other best performances in the movie, which is Miranda Hart. Um, as oh. Miss Bates. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Most devastating film scene
2: of the year, I'd say. That, uh, yes.
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I still, it's like, it, it, do you ever, like, it, there are things I don't want to go into details, but there are things that I've done in my past that I've realized, like, I've hurt someone's feelings by being stupid or thoughtless oh, or saying something. Absolutely. And everyone, and, like, they will just occur to me again every once in a while, and I will just, like, Cringe and like blush and like feel terrible about myself again. And yeah, that the scene you're referring to with Miranda Hart, I have uh, a few times over the past month occasionally thought of it again and just felt bad for her all over again. Yeah. 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 All right.
2: Uh, Scott? Uh, my number three, which I suspect might come up again, so stop me if, we, if it does. Uh, the Invisible Man? Uh, yeah, we'll get there. Okay.
0: Then move along. All right. Uh, My number three is Dan Scanlon's Onward, um, a film that a lot of people have said uh is is like minor pixar uh and i disagree i think uh it is in the tradition of like some of the best pixar movies out there Uh, i do recognize that there and you know what in the in that pixar tradition there is like your main plot but then there's like this sort of a sub theme of like this is a magical world that has uh settled for like modern technology. Uh, but then as our main characters go on this quest that has nothing to do with that, uh, more and more of the characters that they encounter, uh, are start to embrace their magical nature. Uh, and so it's, the the world building aspect of it could actually be seen as a little bit, not necessarily distracting, but a lot of time is spent on that, especially in the beginning. Um, but to me, I, I didn't necessarily it didn't necessarily bother me. Instead, I just really embraced the whole vision of what Dan Scanlon was doing, and I really responded to the story that is being told it is a very grown-up story one that i think uh younger audiences probably could appreciate but certainly older people like myself can can really value um you know it's a in its own way it's a dead father movie so obviously it's going to speak to me in that way um but it also gets to this idea of You know when you define, it's it's so easy to define yourself by loss and by pain and tragedy, and to try to fill that void with something or try to regain something—the thing that you've lost—and in doing so, it is entirely possible to to not actively ignore, but just not see what is in front of you and the, and the people that are alongside you or just the circumstances that you're in that are so that can be fulfilling if you let them be. And I really, and the way that that uh, the way that the film engages in that is it winds up being in its own way kind of a a twist and one that instinctively because you're so on board with the main character and so on board with his goals instinctively you're like, no, what you, you don't realize what you're giving up. Uh, but at the same time, the film has has really laid the groundwork for that to be emotionally and thematically, um, fulfilling uh all of that underneath some really interesting visuals some really uh exciting and and thrilling uh set pieces and and some very solid voice work uh by tom holland and chris pratt uh, mel rodriguez who's always wonderful um i i really uh responded to it on on a number of levels and i feel like I do think that a lot of people probably relegate it to again like minor Pixar may, maybe just because it's newer and that tends to be uh what they do but i i feel like it's it's right up there with with something like uh you know a, a wally or a finding nemo or something like that so uh i i highly recommend it if if somebody i believe it's on disney plus if somebody has disney plus uh check it out it's worth it
1: Oh, around to me again already. Yes. Cause we, oh, that's right. Cause we I'm sk- sorry. Did you want me to go on? No, <laughs> that's okay. Okay. Uh, so, um, I don't know if someone else has this one later, but my number two film of 2020 so far is Josephine Decker's Shirley. Nope. No, I was a little disappointed in it. Um, I'm uh, I'm sad to hear that. Um, uh, although, it's weird. Um, I'll get into the movie in a second, but... Uh, I, um, never mind. Yeah. I was going to say something that's not, uh, say something about that wasn't about the movie, but about my experience in Sundance, but I'll, I'll, uh, save it for another time. Not a negative thing about Sundance. Uh, I would never say anything negative about Sundance. No, there's nothing bad to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a so, chilly, uh, right? Uh, but I like that. I like yeah. that part of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, it's, Surely it's a, it's a. It surely is about Shirley Jackson writing one of her novels, but it's a fictionalized account of a, you know, a real person writing a novel that became a real novel. I forget the name of the one that it's about, but um, hangs a man. Uh, uh, hangs a man. Yeah. Okay. Um, and Shirley Jackson is known uh, as a horror writer, and I feel like Josephine Decker took. Cues from that in making Shirley, which feels like, um, and I feel guilty about making this comparison because it's like unwoke or whatever, but it feels like a Roman Polanski movie in a lot of ways. Uh, it's very um, uh, in- internalized psychological horror. There's there's uh, a, a lot of sweaty close-ups um uh, that's kind of how i would describe most of the movie is sweaty close-ups um uh and uh i think that's the
0: trend that's like the german translation of the film right like that's the <laughs> title there
1: um and uh i i, I should have uh, uh thought of more <laughs> to to say about it but um it it, it it did stick with me. It did work with me uh, more than uh, it did for Scott, I guess. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I wish I, I'm, I'm suddenly like uh, uh, the cat's got my tongue on, on certain things. I think I, think I got in my head deciding whether or not to say that other thing. And uh, well, Elizabeth
2: Moss is very good in it. Uh, I like the way uh, both her conception of the character and kind of the way her character is designed like so many period pieces feel like they're just dressed for the period. Elizabeth Moss in the movie looks like those old photographs you see, of people in the period where it's like, they got like halfway to the point where you're supposed to be like fully dressed and like prim and proper for the fifties or whenever it's said. And then there's like, I don't have the effort to go all the way, you know, so her hair is always a little messy. Her glasses are a little crooked. Um, she, her character feels very lived in, which I did not feel was the case for the rest of the movie.
1: Um, That's too bad. So you didn't like Odessa Young's performance either then?
2: Uh, Her performance was good. I feel like the conception of the character was a little thin. Um, And just on the whole, the screenplay was just very thin and has too many scenes that start and stop too quickly. It doesn't feel like that kind of descent into madness that Josephine Decker's, the three other Josephine Decker films I've seen have. Um, It doesn't have like this. You know, a lot of comparison has been made to who's a Virginia Woolf because it has a similar thing of this young couple being brought in by this very dysfunctional older couple um, and them kind of being driven mad by each other. But it doesn't have that sense of, like, cascading into nothingness. It feels very kind of herky-jerky and starting off. I wasn't surprised to find that it was the screen artist for a screenplay. It just feels too, like, every scene has a definitive point without adding up to an entire portrait.
1: Uh, I, I, I see. I see what you're saying. Um, uh, or, I mean, I, I don't agree with it, but right. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. Um, uh, I, I, I found that yes, Elizabeth Moss is, Moss is great, and so is I thought Odessa Young was great too. And I find, I mean, we're not even talking about the fact that Logan Lerman and Michael Schulberg are, are both in the movie, and also I think both uh, very good and have substantial parts in the movie. But um, the 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 heart of the movie is the sometimes adversarial and sometimes conspiratorial relationship between Shirley and Odessa Young's character. And um I guess the uh the um the angst ridden goth adjacent teen in me uh liked the way that the movie um Seems to be obsessed with, or at least the characters may be obsessed with mortality, obsessed with their own uh, deaths. Odessa Young's character, I think, is uh, uh, I, I think there, there's a there's a history of not just movies, but all fiction and and, and literature of uh, romanticizing, or glorifying the death of young women and um, I think the the movie uh, kind of shows what it's like to, or, or at least attempts to to come close to what it's like to be a young woman in uh, a society that sees uh, mortality in a kind of sees their own death in a kind of uh, uh, glorified way. Sure. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting far uh, afield and not making my point uh, very well. But this always happens. There's always at least one movie whenever I do a we do a countdown that I'm like fuck I should have I, I should have like rewatched it or something before like I have no I know the feeling I, I I can't remember what year Marjorie Prime came out but I put it on my top ten of the year but I still to this day think I didn't make a good case on that top ten episode for why it should be a top ten. It always,
0: years. yeah. It hap- always
1: happens with yeah. one.
0: Yeah. Like when I talked about thoroughbreds, it's like, no, oh, I could have done better. <laughs> uh, you know,
1: and I've got that width of the staircase thing when I was like, well, if we were talking Marjorie prime right now, sure. I'd make a great case. <laughs> <laughs> now I know what I want to say. All right. Uh, Scott, you're up next with your number two. Yeah. My number two is, uh, Andrew on's, uh, driveways. Yes. Which didn't qualify for me because it's oh, a 2019, sure, sure. Well, you my did see sister. It. I loved it.
2: Yeah, it's so good. Uh, so it's about a young mother played by Hong Chao uh, who travels, I would imagine for the first time to her sister's house with her uh, young boy. Um, her sister has recently passed away. We come to understand that they weren't terribly close. They, uh, you know, I think the sister was a good deal older, so they didn't essentially grow up together, but they still had that kind of familial tie. The sister passed away, so she goes to hopefully clean up and sell the house, you know, make a decent profit. She's kind of uh, well-employed, but not gainfully employed as a medical transcriptionist, wants to be a nurse, but uh, definitely struggling for money. and uh, Enough that when she gets to the house and discovers that it is, uh, her sister very much struggled with hoarding, and the house is unlivable. Uh, she has to go stay at a hotel, which we quickly understand is a pretty major sacrifice for her uh, to fork over the money for a cheap motel in whatever town they've landed in. I, does the film even specify? I don't, I don't think, think so. it does. Yeah, um, we understand. She comes from like what Wisconsin or something, so it's some okay. ways away from there. Okay. Um. Anyway, that doesn't really matter. But uh, so um. The, but the house could still, you know, make her some money. So she goes through the process of cleaning it out and it kind of does a familiar thing of becoming a window into her sister's life that she had no conception of. And while she's cleaning this house out, she kind of has to send her son off to do whatever, you know, he's kind of too young to really help in any meaningful way. Um, so she ends up Letting or forcing him to hang out with neighbors—it's uh, brought back a lot of flashbacks to my own childhood of being shoved off on various neighbors who I didn't <laughs> like, didn't understand, and was kind of sitting in their house for a few hours a day. Um, but the boy ends up strangely befriending uh, their next-door neighbor, who is an older Korean vet played by Brian Dennehy. Um, and, Korean war vet. He's a white man. Sorry, that's He's not a Korean
1: specifying. veteran. Specifying. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, Korean war veteran uh, played by Brian Dennehy um and the two of them just kind of hit it off uh he's a widower and doesn't really have a lot going on other than his weekly bingo night which he can't even drive himself to um so he's very kind of shut up in the house just kind of watches the neighborhood go by um but they become something that the other needs at this point um sense of company and companionship that uh, can extend beyond the limited world to which they're supposed to exist. You know, this kid's supposed to be going out and playing with the kids, but he doesn't really get along with the kids he's shoved off on. Uh, The older guy gets along with the guys he hangs out with, but he only sees them, you know, once a week to shoot the shit over bingo. It doesn't seem like he has really deep relationships with them. Um, But the kid becomes a way in which uh, Brian Denny can kind of uh, impart something to the future. He has a daughter that he doesn't really understand or get along with and we sense that there's a lot in the past between them that is difficult for either of them to overcome and the nature of their relationship is by definition and becomes increasingly in different ways transitory you know the goal from the start is to sell the house so whatever relationship they build is designed within the film to be temporary but of course both of them become more attached than that and when they're reminded of its temporary status Uh, It kind of comes crashing down in a surprising way, building to really one of the most breathtaking endings I've seen all year, Um, in part because, like the characters, you don't expect it to end kind of as soon as it does. Mm. Um, It's really, really touching. I I completely loved it.
1: Yeah, um, and... uh, uh... I mean you've got the the kid's great, Hong Chao is always great, Brian is always great. You've also got um Jerry Adler is one of uh his uh, bingo friends. Yeah. Um and the uh the mom of the neighbor kids is um is it Christine Ebersole? is that her name? Let's see, I've the uh, page up. Uh Yep, that's her. Yeah, that's a that's a terrific little performance too. The the movie is uh, very uh uh what's the one I'm looking for? Um it's shaded uh perfectly very very well uh uh observed i think yeah. in in even small uh moments and and with characters like like christine eversell's character who is kind of a joke but is also real uh like yeah. you know, i mean well, you said first... that you you could you can you have memories of going to the yeah. neighbor's houses. like i totally do too and she seems like the mom of the kid you don't like
2: yeah, totally. Well, I, for, first, she seems very sweet and genuine, and you're like, this seems like a decent person in the neighborhood, but she just kind of slowly unravels to be like completely clueless. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just I, I feel like we're kind of starved in some ways for these films that are very kind of authentic portraits of kind of people who are working class but aren't overly burdened by that, just kind of going through everyday struggles. And this draws out a lot of emotion from, I think, something people go through all the time. Yeah, it's really good. Did you did you see Spawn Night, his first film? No, I didn't. But now I really yeah. want to. I wanted yeah. to at the
0: time. I just kind of missed it. But
1: yeah, very good. All right, number two for
0: Tyler. All right, uh, it is in fact Scott's number three, which is uh, Lee Wanells Wannell's. I don't remember how you say his last name. Uh, the Invisible Man, which uh, man? What a like! I was excited to see it, and uh, but. Uh, I did not expect it to be as just fully beautifully realized as it is. Uh, It's, it's a great example of something that David, you and I have said many times before, which is like, if you want to make a movie that has, uh, you know, I mean, uh, on one hand, you've got something like defy bloods, a film that has a message and is, and is trying to be relevant to conversations happening today. And that's a very, you know, uh, he's casting a, a a wide net, uh, whereas something like the invisible man, because it's a genre movie, it's like you, the best way to make your comment about society is to first do justice to the genre. And with the invisible man, the scarier it is, the more tense it is, the more, uh, you know, if, if defy bloods is a shotgun, like the invisible man is a, is a scalpel like it is a sniper rifle to go with the gun thing um it is so specific so focused and the more focused it is the more effective it is on a thematic standpoint uh and you know elizabeth moss obviously well represented on the list already uh has to carry this movie the rest of the cast is very good but like her level of fear determination the questioning of herself, because there is that the gaslighting concept there. Uh, It all works so well. Um, It it is it's wonderfully structured. It is wonderfully photographed as well, because obviously, when you're dealing with an invisible man, because I think this is a, a movie that looks at its concept and says, okay, what let's look at it from every possible angle and get what we can out of it. And one of the big things is you're dealing with absence, but is it actual absence? And so you'll have shots where nothing's in the frame, or or the most important thing in the movie is in the frame. You don't you never quite know, but either way the camera will linger because even if it's not there, it could be. And so whether it be the the soundtrack, the way it's shot, the way it's acted, the way it's structured, it is so damn near perfect in every way it works as a genre film. It works as a character study and it works in the larger, uh, cultural conversation about the way, relationships work and in this and in this case and mostly in in what people have been talking about it's like the way a woman is is treated but this idea of being so possessive of another person that even when the relationship is over in this case in a very extreme way even when the relationship is over that person still has a hold on you and this idea of love being a possessive thing and feeling like well i love you and thus that entitles me somehow to uh to your love for me or at the very least your affection or your presence in my life and man it just i expected to like it i did not expect it to to just get its hooks in me and just stay with me as long as it has Uh, i saw it on my birthday and it was like the best birthday present i could have ever gotten and scott i know you like it as well not quite as much as i do not as much Literally. But you yeah. haven't seen Drive Voice, so who's said? That's true.
2: That's true. Um, yeah. Uh to put it pretty plainly, the movie rocked my shit pretty hard. Um, <laughs> I was completely enthralled. And I just I love any movie that takes a pretty simple idea and runs all the way with it and as many times along the way as you lose track of time and you think like well this is about as we've reached a good point with this story now we should be wrapping it up it just keeps pushing it further but not in a way that feels like it's extending it it just feels like you naturally need to keep descending further and further into this and yeah all the stuff you talk about with craft is so on point um just the early parts where you already know the movie you're watching so when the camera just pans over to the other side of the room and nothing's there, <laughs> you're like, well, is this the part where stuff stuff starts happening? It might be. Uh, but uh Lee what, what was to decide when well, i uh just allows that discomfort to settle in and lets us just sit with not knowing the same way that she would, even if she didn't know she was being stalked by an even before she knows she's being stalked by an invisible man. The uh, threat that she lived in when she was with him doesn't go away. Um, the sense that he could be around every corner, that he's always watching her, that he's always keeping tabs on her, even if there wasn't this kind of genre thing hanging over it, all those would still be emotions she would be uh, grappling with in some way. And so for the film to take so long and just linger in just that immediate post traumatic stress uh, is really remarkable. And then by the time the genre stuff starts happening, it does not stop and it goes every direction you can imagine with it. it's so
0: so good and it also speaks to the 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 brilliance of the sound design as well because yeah. you're dealing with a character who obviously is always watching but whether whether the care whether she knows that he's invisible or not she's everything needs to be heightened when when you are when you are being monitored, it forces you to monitor everything else all the time. And so, you know, when, when, when she inadvertently kicks something, it is like deafening uh, for the audience. Um, And yeah, and it's, I remember something that, um, you know, comedians when they talk about the comics that they like, the thing that they tend to say the most is like, this comedian it's something they say about brian Regan a lot like when he finds a premise he will attack it to the point where it's just like there's nothing left like he has gotten everything out of it that he can and has made it effective and so like yeah i agree there are moments where i'm just like i i don't know where we're headed after this yeah because if this feels like a like a climax to me but then he finds another way to really to realize this concept to such an extent that when I think back on it, it's like, yeah, I can't think of any, anything left to explore. I think he handled it perfectly. And man, what a wonderful film.
1: Yeah. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss is the uh, MVP of this For countdown. Sure, yeah. Um, of course the MVP means most veiled profit. <laughs> 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 She's got, like, three or four of those things yeah. on. Um, all right. so we're They learned their our... lesson from that person. They came up and ripped one off. Yeah. There's another one right underneath, like, Robert tax
0: sunglasses. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. <clears throat> on to my number one film of the year. Uh, this is another Sundance uh, experience for me. And that's uh, Eliza Hittman's Never Rarely Sometimes Always. And, uh, Tyler, you, uh, you talked about a movie that has an issue to address or a point to make. Uh, never really, sometimes always does have that. It is a movie about how, despite the fact that abortion is technically legal, it is very, very difficult, uh, to get an abortion uh, for a lot of people. Uh, not just practically, if you happen to, depending on where you live or how much money you have, but also there's an emotional toll to the questions that you're asked and the the, the hoops that you have to jump through. Um, there's a psychological toll. Uh, so yes, that exists. The movie is undoubtedly a pro-choice movie, an argument for uh, abortion access, but um, that's not why it's number one on my list, uh, even though I agree with that um it's because the the movie is such an elegantly executed seemingly low-key but actually uh universally uh um uh resonant uh story um it's there's we we started or uh, at the beginning of this episode earlier in this episode we were talking about Spike Lee and how he can be very visually uh, virtuosic he can be uh, very loud and um, sometimes it does uh, it does seem to be this impression that that's that's all that's new to say in cinema visually with a camera is something that grabs your attention and a movie like. Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, uh, which is directed by Eliza Hittman and cinematographer is Helena Luvar, uh, I think is how you say her name, um, who who also shot Beach Rats, which is a a beautiful movie. Um, They find things to do with framing and with lighting, with texture, visual texture, um, that are... uh, incredibly emotionally impactful without being uh ostentatious there and 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 part of that is a uh, a a well-placed trust in her two leads um uh sydney flanagan and uh oh i don't remember her name um the, the 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 cousin. Tell uh, Talia Ryder is her name. Um weird they have neither have ever acted before and mm. yet um or at least not on film. Um and yet uh uh the their cousins uh, and friends and the the things that we get from them, the things that we learn from them about who they are, about their relationship to their families, their relationships to each other, relationships to their boss for instance because they both work together at a grocery store um the things that we get from them without any of it being in the dialogue um so little is said in this movie that is of like specific overt substance um much more of what comes through about what the about the emotional journeys of these characters are in their looks or in the actions they perform for for one another there's a um there's a shot where one of them helps the other put on some makeup and, and just and at that point in the movie that action like literally almost almost brought me to tears um uh, and the movie's full of just just gorgeous moments like that, that are, uh, I mean, Scott, you were talking about how, uh, there's certain types of cinema. We don't see enough of, uh, anymore because so much of, especially mainstream cinema is geared toward the big sort of event appointment, tent whatever, uh, term you want to use. Um, uh, I feel like never really sometimes always, uh, is an argument that there are still gargantuan things that can be done with, uh, it, Intimate and, and uh, uh, not uh, non-ostentatious uh, uh, movies
2: yeah absolutely it 's another one that fell a little outside of my top five um, and which at first, I had some some doubts about. Um, I thought it was maybe just too much of a process movie of like, well, these are the steps you have to go through in order to get an abortion if you live in a certain social not class if you 're a certain age, you know, if you fall in this girl 's circumstances, basically. Um, but I think the way it builds her character, and I don't want to kind of give away the game of that, but the way it builds her character is very subtly, uh, constructed, but very elegantly. So, um, what it ends up revealing about her and her own limitations, um, limitations, both in, uh, I guess mainly in her ability to seek help, um, are really touching, and I think say a lot about how people end up uh, in these sort of circumstances of not kind of stretching out um, and demanding her own space and demanding what she needs um, but of needing to be guided and then kind of the loneliness that comes from that
1: uh I mentioned Sydney Flanagan and Telluride. I also want a quick shout out to uh, Theodore Pellerin. I think is, I'm not sure. Pellerin, Yeah. Uh, the actor who's, uh plays a uh, just a boy they befriend while they're waiting for the abortion to happen. Um, who's good in the movie, but I just happen to be watching on Becoming a God in Central Sam. Florida right now. Um, and uh, he's fantastic on that show. So he seems like maybe a uh, one to watch type I of actor. I hope so. Yeah.
2: All right. It's me next. Yep uh my number one will be no surprise to avid listeners who care about my taste um but as song sang su's yourself and yours uh which to get into my own uh process of determining when a movie comes out um i typically go by u.s release year unless the movie is older than five years uh but yourself and yours premiered four years ago so it barely qualifies (laughs) um uh, it's got a digital release. Uh, it's one I've seen a few times. Uh, first saw it in 2016, saw it again a couple of years ago and seen it again since. Um, but it is uh, about a couple who gets into a misunderstanding because the guy is told that uh, his girlfriend was seen, like, out drinking and just, like, making a big mess of herself in public, and she completely denies this. Uh, meanwhile, the girl is approached by by a series of guys who swear they've met her before, but she claims to have no memory of them. And it turns out maybe she has a twin or maybe she's just making it up to mess with these guys, or maybe there's duplicates of her just being sprouted up around around town. Hong Seng Su as always uh, kind of treads a strange line between very literal, very straightforward interactions that also seem to be taking place in some kind of otherworldly ghost purgatorial realm. Um, he has a very specific touch to these that are built on kind of everyday misunderstandings, but which seem to be, uh, yeah, like I said, just a touch surreal and a touch strange. Um, I was just pulling up at the Times Wikipedia page and reminding that Scott Tobias said it was kind of a strange reversal on, uh, the, what is that? The obscure object of desire, the bunwell movie, and has kind of that same feel of any impossible thing could happen at any moment, but the way those impossible things happen, will seem for a moment like real life it has a kind of dreamlike logic where everything makes sense only it doesn't quite add up and the whole film ends up being a really i think a mostly charged and uh, potent meditation on a kind of jealousy and misunderstandings and wanting another person to in a relationship to be this person that you imagine them to be but they end up being something different and then the loneliness that comes from expecting certain things of others and not accepting, you know, kind of everything that comes with, uh, dating a whole person. Um, yeah, it's a really, I think thoughtful and elegant movie. It's probably my favorite Hong Sang-soo movie still. Um, and I'm very pleased it finally came out.
1: I, uh, I can't say much because I, uh, haven't seen it in four years. I'm like, yeah, I didn't revisit it. I saw it four years ago. Um, and I I like it, but I think we we had the same conversation. We talked about this on the summer movie preview episode we did. That there are certain there's a certain t- intentional imbalance of tone in yourself and yours that kept me at a at a distance. I like the surreal stuff, but then there's also some, so also some like stuff that I thought was more. Corny or self-aware, uh, okay. In a way, um, certain uses. I mean, obviously, Hong Sang-soo. Su- this is obvious to people who watch Hong Sang Su movies <laughs> that he likes the zoom lens. He loves um, the zoom lens. And sometimes there are, there are parts in the, in this movie that I felt that the zooming was a little arch, maybe. Um, but uh, it's not enough to say I dislike the movie. It's just uh, I've never been able to. I, I can't put it uh, at the top of uh, I tend to like the Hong Seng Su uh after this haunting zoo of of hotel by the river and especially um uh on the beach alone at night right uh more but yeah it's still a good movie right on all right so for me
0: a film that david loved but alas (laughs) technically a 2019 movie it is andrew patterson's the Vast of night yeah um uh, a movie that uh, even though uh, I had heard good things going in, uh, it still took me by surprise. Um, I, I, and I, I recently did a, a more than one lesson episode about it. And uh, so I talked about it for a long time and that I feel like I don't want to, I don't want to talk that long about it, obviously, but I, it, it feels like I don't even know where to start. It's just such a, a beautifully realized movie one that, despite being fairly short, is also uh, very patient in trying to allow the atmosphere to sort of drive uh, the characters and the story. And then, of course, as the as the characters are learning more about uh, what's going on in their town, uh, that drives this atmosphere of dread. It's interesting to me that there are people that have referred to this as a horror movie um, it certainly is, a, is a, a sci-fi drama, but there are moments of dread, and it's worth noting that sometimes the moments of dread are is just characters listening to something, like there's no immediate threat. But it's just the realization that these characters have tapped into something that is bigger than they are and something that is completely foreign to what they know, which admittedly living in a small town is probably most things. But nonetheless, like... uh, not knowing, sometimes not knowing what to do with it, with information, with new information, is enough to really uh, frighten a person. And as these characters, as, as the information is is introduced slowly but surely, uh, it's I, I find myself just riveted. Uh, listening very close, obviously, because sound is very important, but also really watching the actors as they listen and, you know, as they're hearing something, I have no choice but to hear it as well. I'm not seeing, you know, we're not cutting to the person that's calling in to the radio station. So, uh, it actually does a very good job of, of, uh, creating b- almost by default, like an empathy with these characters. You're doing the exact same thing they are, um. And then uh, I also just, I think it's a really great night movie. I know that sounds strange, but uh, I like movies that... As, as a, a, a night person, uh, especially living like in Los Angeles, um, and uh, back when I would drive for Lyft, I would drive at night, and just the world is different at night. There's just a different vibe, and it's not purely visual. It's just the, the emptiness of the streets, whether it be a small town or a city, uh, and I feel like this film captures that very well. And also it's this idea that it's not even that late. It's that the town is rallied around this very specific uh, event Mm -hmm. that forces the film to be tremendously lonely, even though these characters aren't officially alone at any moment, they could go to the high school gym and be surrounded by people, but they are uh, alone in this, in this quest. And I just really appreciate the film's commitment to, crafting a tone by um, creating a sense of geography within the town and really getting, really putting us in the position of these characters. And uh, I, yeah, I, it's, Oh, and then also the other thing that I really like is that it it's it's a movie that is it's in its own way like a TV show about characters listening and hosting the radio, you know. And so it's like this celebration of, you know, uh, media throughout the ages and the way they all come together uh, to show the way characters can connect with one another, the way, you know, these characters uh these characters connect with callers the way they connect with each other and then we connect with them through a screen uh there's just so much going on in this intimate
1: small genre movie and i just love it so much i I think uh i think i am one of those people who has described it as a horror movie uh and I, I i wouldn't have a problem with that certainly um, but I hadn't thought, I mean, you're right about it being, uh, what all the, in, in multiple different ways, uh, a night movie. I'd never thought of that, thought of that term before, but one of my favorite things to do as much as, you know, I'm a champion for the theatrical experience and the sanctity of seeing a movie in the theater. <laughs> um, uh, when it comes to horror movies, my favorite way to watch horror movies is alone in the middle of the night. And that's how I watch the best of night. And the, uh, the scene where Gail Cronauer is telling her very long story about her her son is that right? Yeah. Um, uh, literally skin crawling. I, like I had the shivers yeah. from watching that scene. Um, but also, what I love about uh, the other thing I love about the movie it, that it's this is going to be very uh, nebulous. Uh, um, but I've said before that all I'm looking for in a movie or any other sort of art is to not be bullshitted. I'm looking for the artist's truth i'm looking to believe that they believe what they're saying and a lot of times when movies have flashy or very you know i mentioned the word arch before i mentioned the word ostentatious uh as as pejoratives so far in this episode when movies have those types of touches i'm often like is this is this director just trying to show off and but there are things in the vast of night like like the Like the picture dropping out and us just having a black screen and talking that I can't say that I know what Andrew Patterson is thinking or what he's trying to do, but I believe that he believes that that's meaningful. I believe that that means something to him, that he's not just, won't this be a cool trick to just have the the picture fade out. I I believe that he believes it. And that's enough uh, for me. I feel like I'm in very good hands uh, the whole yeah.
0: time. And yeah. that, uh, the, yeah, he's not doing something. you know, I mean, for uh, any, time somebody makes like a first or, or a second film, there's always the potential uh, for them to show off simply because they can, mm-hmm. but not not show off, but like experiment. And there's nothing wrong with, ex- with experimentation. Um, but I, this is a film that does engage in experimentation, but I agree with you. I feel like he knows why he is doing it. He may not telegraph it to us. He may leave it to us but i don't think he's doing something solely because hey what the hell neat i get mm-hmm. to uh, i get to make a movie oh boy uh it's nothing like that and yeah it just uh like i said i had heard how how good it was going in and it still uh it still surprised me how how great it was
1: scott your turn to naysay oh, i haven't seen it because oh uh, i thought you had oh right because you don't have amazon
0: I don't have Amazon, and
2: as soon as they want to, you know, step up and let people pay for it, uh, I'd be more than happy to. But this sure. idea—that is this topic of another day. But the increasing subscriptionification of movies is the most worrying trend for me because uh, I don't want to subscribe to five services to watch the new movies.
0: Absolutely. Incidentally, my documentary "Real Redemption: <laughs> The Rise of Christian Cinema" is available at faithlifetv.com. Five dollars a month.
1: Uh, yeah, that is a top. We actually, that is a topic for another day. We should definitely do, we should definitely talk about that. Um, uh, I mean, does it bother you more because you're not a subscriber? Like, cause you have Netflix. Are you bothered by the fact that the five bloods is only on Netflix?
2: Oh, uh, I mean, I'm bothered by that ideologically. Yeah. Um, obviously not literally cause I can still watch it, but right. like, <laughs> I guess I'm bothered by the whole system um, where there's suddenly three new streaming service, major streaming services within the last six months that are debuting movies, uh, and now with the pandemic, increasingly so. Um, and that's only gonna increase. You know, I had Netflix and Hulu because they were on the ground floor and they're like the original people in that racket, but uh, the idea that we all need to keep up, we all need to become TV people just to watch movies no, one and done. You pay for once, but,
0: I, and but here's
1: the, here's the workaround. Here is that paying for one month of the thing is about the same as a movie ticket.
2: Sure, but so then you just I got to track. They cancel it. I don't like keeping track.
1: Okay, well that's see. This is the nanny state liberal here. <laughs> <laughs> it's everything done for him. Uh, no, no, I, think I you just want to pay point.
2: a price for one movie.
1: Yeah, I, go I, I, to the ticket
2: counter. Want to say one, please,
0: and then that. Yeah, exactly. The you of my exchange. Yeah, exactly. You're a free market conservative, as it turns out. You, uh, <laughs> but no, I, no. It's interesting, actually, because like a you know a hundred years ago, uh, studios were would if, if a, if a theater or a theater chain wanted to show like one movie with like a big star studios, be like, okay, yes, you can do that as long as you uh, get all these other movies that no one will want to see as well. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of what they're doing now. Uh, And, and uh, yeah, it's interesting to see uh, there's a certain cyclical nature to things. Um, And, It, it it does bother you know I I mentioned jokingly my my film like I I did ask if if it would be possible to make it available simply to rent uh, through Faith Life and uh, I think they they opted for not partially because like it is it'd be five dollars to rent or you can subscribe for five dollars but yeah then you have to keep track and and I just like the idea of. If somebody, just give somebody the the option. Hell, make it $6 to rent or $5 to, whatever it is. But like, yeah, I do like the idea of, it's like i'm on board with watching this movie not with what your whole platform does you know what i mean i have no doubt that there are people that uh that would that would enjoy or have enjoyed my film that would not at all be on board with what faith life tv does you know what i mean and but by subscribing i'm i feel like i'm bashing faith life they've been very good to me (laughs) don't get me wrong but but it is a christian service and so i i you know as we've been we as we've been publicizing and stuff i recognize like there are people who might not want to review the movie because for somebody to watch it they need to subscribe to a christian service and maybe this person's not not on board with that Mm -hmm. as opposed to just making it available to rent a one-time thing and then it's you know we endorse this movie and then and that's all you know so i'm i'm kind of on board with you
2: yeah it's also just the idea of like a movie should exist more than one place at some point in its lifetime. Like, people were railing against the idea of Criterion releasing Netflix movies. They're like, that's ridiculous because everyone has Netflix. And, like, to a certain extent, that's true. But should that be the only place a movie lives?
0: No.
1: Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, uh, I'll probably just do the thing where if i want to watch greyhound i'll sign up for apple tv and watch it and then cancel my subscription <laughs> look there we got bigger problems that's that's my, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's true
2: as long is. as i'm on a movie podcast uh we kind of doubt okay
1: <laughs> well we did the episode uh yeah. you guys we did the episode about the uh top five and the episode about the streaming services uh, two, for can, two for one uh, and, and the episode about the veiled profit. yeah <sighs> that's right with a little,
0: uh, a little supplement of oil Dorado. Don't you worry yeah. about that.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, well, you can find us at battleshippretention.com uh, I didn't review anything this week, uh, sadly. There's no reviews on the website uh, <laughs> this week. Nothing came out the 4th of July weekend uh, that I really know of. Uh, by the time, I, by well, the time this repost- comes out... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you can repost my review of The
2: Truth, which uh right. will yes, be the streaming truth. by the time people uh listen to this episode and you can just rent that like a normal person no subscription
1: yes yeah. pay your price there you go by find scott's review of the truth at battleship
0: by the time this airs there pro- there should be a review of the beach house which i believe is a shutter exclusive uh at battleship retention so uh yeah now okay. see this conversation it's just gonna keep coming up <laughs> i know we so review things
1: Tyler so far this year on com, there have been reviews i reviewed the, the night house yeah at sundance you reviewed the lodge yeah now you've got the beach house in a few weeks i'll have a review up of the rental mm-hmm. uh there seems to be a trend this year
0: yeah and then obviously there's town you know townhouses coming up um yeah and outhouse um dog house (laughs) and then before you know it you're
1: tommy lee jones in the future just (laughs) listing all the places where richard kimball could be hiding all right so that's at battleship pretension.com you can email us at david battleship pretension.com or tyler battleship pretension.com you can follow me david on twitter at davy pretension you can follow tyler on twitter at tyler pretension tyler you mentioned you did a more than one lesson episode about the vast of night anything else to plug uh, yeah, uh, this week I am on friend of the show, Mike
0: Siegel's uh, Travel Tales podcast, Ooh. talking about my, my trips to New Zealand and uh, various countries in Asia and Scotland and, and all of that. And uh, it was a good time. So you can check that out uh, at the uh, wherever the Travel Tales website is.
1: And Scott, do you have anything to plug?
2: Yeah, uh, I just literally before we record this episode I recorded an episode with the Great Hearing Cast crew about and Ventura. Uh, so look for that either Ugh. by the time this episode is up or very soon after.
1: Not uh, uh, not to let the cat out of the uh, cat, any cats out of any bags for the Patreon listeners, but that's a top ten movie of all time for me. Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that firework agrees. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fireworks for Laventura. All right. Um, well, thank you for being here, Scott. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.